This episode is sponsored by Marvel Strike Force. If you're looking for a superhero-themed mobile game, look no further. Marvel Strike Force is a mobile squad RPG that allows you to battle with your favorite team of superheroes and supervillains in a fight to save the universe against threats like Doctor Doom and Apocalypse. Your goal is to power up your favorite characters to complete missions, unlock gear and other resources, and beat other players in PvP modes like Alliance War and Real-Time Arena. The game is currently celebrating its 6 year anniversary, and they're letting new users in on the celebration by providing free stuff, courtesy of our unique link in the show notes. The anniversary consists of weekly events and bonuses, and if you complete each event, you can receive special rewards and skins. Make sure to log in each day and each week to take advantage of all of the new characters that are being released specifically for this event. This will be Marvel Strike Force's most generous event to date, so don't miss out. We've received a unique promo code, so new users can follow our link in the description and use the promo code MAXPOOL. That's M-A-X-P-O-O-L. Thanks to Marvel Strike Force for sponsoring this episode. The legends are true! But overwhelming power! The sauce of destiny! Yes! The most legendary sauce has arrived as McDonald's transforms into the anime world of Wickdonald's. The greatest flavors unite in all new savory chili McDonald's sauce to make your 10-piece Nuggets, fries, and Sprite ultra-powerful. Unlock manga comics with every meal and sit down for a new anime short every week only at Wickdonald's. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba, go! I participate in McDonald's for a limited time while supplies last. This is your invitation to a masterclass in engineering and design. Your ticket to go from zero to 60 with the Lexus Performance Line. A feeling this dynamic is invite only. Fortunately, you're invited. Experience the exhilaration of the Lexus Performance Line and some of the best offers of the year on select models at the Invitation to Lexus sales event, now through April 1st. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Slash Film Show. Today is Tuesday, October 31st, 2023. On today's episode, we're going to be talking about the latest film and TV news. My name is Ben Pearson. I'm an editor at SlashFilm.com, and I'm joined on today's episode by Slash Film staff writer and box office analyst, Ryan Scott. Hey, hey everyone. How's it going? Happy Halloween, Ryan. What are you doing for Halloween tonight? Anything? Uh, uh, my girlfriend and I are going to... There's a bar near us that gets all spooked up for Halloween, and then we are going to sit at home, eat Chinese food, and play Dead Island. Uh, that that is, sounds uh, delightful. <laughs> uh, yeah, we did a lot of, like, more interesting Halloween stuff over the weekend. I dressed up as a uh, Crystal Lake camp counselor, uh, which is very on brand for me. But uh, <laughs> that, that was... Yeah, but... Uh, <laughs> thank you, Ben. Um, but yeah, so that was that was my uh, grandiose Halloween stuff. Uh, what about you, man? What do you, what do you normally do this time of year? Uh... Not much. My um, my sister-in-law has uh, two little girls and then um, my brother-in-law has a little girl and a little boy and they're all like under the age of six. And so, you know, it's just like super cute to see them dress up and go trick-or-treating and stuff. So we typically like go over to their house, which is just a few minutes away. Um, and my wife and I kind of like quasi dress up, but like don't put a ton of effort into it just to sort of like get into the spirit of it and like you know, meet the kids on their level kind of. Um, so I think I'm just going to wear, uh, Paramount actually sent us, uh, some, uh, like Ninja Turtles themed stuff for mutant mayhem earlier this year. There's like a big letterman's jacket, uh, that has TMNT on the back and it's like themed like yellow and, and green, like Ninja Turtle colors. And it came with a little, uh, 
purple mask, like uh, Donatello style. So I'll probably just wear that and, and go as kind of like a quasi Ninja Turtle, but not like a, a full on. Um, not full blown, you know. but but I got to tell you, uh, I, I know like uh, mailers from studios were a bit of a controversial thing last year in regard to journalists, but Paramount, I will say this, when they send one out, boy, they really do it. Uh, I got one for like when the Halo show came out and it was like wild, the stuff that they included in that thing. Yeah, I, I kind of like, I don't know about the controversy there. I kind of feel like these companies have money in their marketing budget and they're going to spend that money anyway. So we might as well, you know, take the stuff and, and you know, use it for giveaways for SlashFilm.com or whatever. Like right now we're giving away 4K copies of Mission Impossible Dead Reckoning Part 1. Um, actually, like I'll link to that in the show notes. People can uh, enter that contest. It's very easy to enter it. All you have to do is like literally follow us on Twitter and retweet one tweet and you have the chance to win uh, a 4K copy of the movie. So like, you know, when they send us stuff, I'm just kind of like, yeah, I don't really care. Like they're going to send this to somebody. They might as well send it to us and we might as well pass it on to our, uh, our listeners where we can. So yeah, just, uh, just to, just so you know, like what it was, it was last year it was a bunch, I guess there was a bunch of people that were like, you know, assuming that these packages we get were like influencing film journalist decisions to say nice things about a show oh, or a movie and anyone who works in this industry knows like eh, yeah yeah i mean that yeah works. that's kind of like tales old as time right like the idea yeah. of even of like being able to go to a screening early is like you know that you, you need that to to be able to do our jobs well but like i think you could make a case that like we're you know we're compromised in some way just from being able to see movies for free sometimes. And I'm not really in that position as much having moved out of LA and there's not really very many free screenings for me to attend uh, online or, or I'm sorry, in person these days, but I do still get digital screeners uh, sometimes. And like, yeah, I guess, I mean, yeah, I got, we could probably do like a, an entire podcast about that, but um, we could. Yeah. But just so you know what the deal was. Yes. I'm no, I appreciate the context. Certainly. Um, okay. Ryan, let's, let's kick things off with some very sad news. Uh, Matthew Perry passed away at the age of 54. Uh, he died in his home and uh, he was found unresponsive in a hot tub uh, on Saturday, this, this past Saturday. And like the entire internet, um, you know, was just there was a massive outpouring of love and support and grief and um condolences and i mean it's just kind of it, it's a really really heartbreaking situation 54 is so young uh and obviously you know he was one of the key players of friends and that show is absolutely massive remains absolutely massive was massive when it was on tv you know originally airing back in the day and has just become like such um a comfort show for I, I would say millions of people at this point, and um, it's just devastating to to hear you know, the news about this. I don't really have anything uh, particularly eloquent to add to the conversation. Um, I thought Jacob actually wrote a really nice piece called "Matthew Perry was the snarky, sincere heart of Friends, and his loss is monumental." I'm going to link to that in the show notes, so diehard fans of the show and and fans of Perry's work on that. Uh, can read that and, and probably connect to what Jacob was saying a little bit more than what I'm saying here. Cause I, I watched friends at the time when it was airing, but it's never really been in the rotation for me. But, um, but yeah, man, I mean, Matthew Perry, like his career obviously transcended friends and, and he was in a bunch of movies and stuff as well. Um, as well as other, I mean, other popular shows and stuff too, but like just, uh, you know, my heart hurt on behalf of all those people, um, you know, my sister being one of them who like loves friends with all of her heart and like watches the show constantly still. So, um, just a real bummer of a story there. And I don't know if you have any like favorite Matthew Perry performances that you want to shout out real quick before we move on. 
Yeah, I was never a big Friends guy, but I actually am a huge fan of that movie, The Whole Nine Yards, that he did with Bruce Willis. Mm-hmm. Um, it's not one of like either of their most discussed. I mean, it got a sequel, so it did well. But I, I've always really enjoyed that movie. It's like a very like dark comedy and very of its time. But um, yeah, it's like easy to see why he's in that movie. It's easy to see why Willis was it at the time. It was that first time where Willis was sort of embracing his age a little bit, and Matthew Perry kind of playing against him as the straight man and. You know, so I, I, I quite like that movie. And I, I sort of always wish that he would we he would have had a bit of, of a better career as like a character actor in movies instead of kind of, you know, the lead guy that he was sort of pushed as for a while. Mm. And, you know, so, yeah, it's a shame we never got more of that. But, uh, you know, it's I, I for a guy that was such a huge towering figure in pop culture, it's just such a shame. But. Yeah. Yeah. So um, rest in peace, Matthew Perry. I don't really know how to like uh, gracefully pivot away from that, Ryan. So I'm just going to do it and talk about uh, a horror movie that was announced that um, I'm very excited about. I'm curious if you are as well. There's a movie that came out almost 10 years ago now, which is wild to think about, called It Follows that was written and directed by David Robert Mitchell. And it starred Micah Monroe. And it's just like one of those all time pitches for a horror movie, which was, if you're not familiar with this film, it's about, well, Ryan, I I assume you know It Follows. Are you a fan of this movie? I absolutely love this movie. It also, for reasons unrelated to the movie, resulted in one of my favorite cinematic experiences of all time, which is not important, but like, but uh, no, I'm, I'm a gigantic fan of this movie. So like, if you could give me like the, the one or two sentence pitch for It Follows, how would you describe that film? Um, it's an entity, uh, translated by sex, uh, will relentlessly follow you to the death. (laughs) Um, it is, uh, it's really, it sounds a little odd, but like, like, uh, but it, but it, in practice, it is terrifying and very fascinating. Yeah. Yeah. Wonderful premise. And you know, it's got that. I always think about the original Terminator, like that line where um, I think it's Michael Bean's character is basically saying, you know, he will not stop ever, like until you're dead kind of thing. It's just like the the um, the terror, the the frightening aspect of this thing that will come after you and will never, ever stop until it completes its mission, which is to ruin or end your life. It's yeah, just and such like a the, terrifying cinematic concept. And like what that does to people, like, cause the only way you can get rid of it is to like give it to another person basically. So it's like the things you would do that you would never think you would do to just save your own life. And like, yes. there's all these messed up implications and that's kind of, the movie starts out pretty brilliantly by sort of showcasing that first and then like letting you know, like, Oh yeah. Like, this is really messed up. Yeah, like, yeah, yeah. And, and, and I think uh, that that adds like such an interesting, um, you know, like intellectual and, and emotional component to it, right? Like what, it's not just uh, a pure survival thing. It's like, what do you have to, you know, what what uh, crimes do you have to commit on others? Yeah, what moral lines are you willing to commit to save yourself? Like it, yes. it's very, it's a, it's a, and it's a, it's a heck of a movie. I mean, it was, it was, it was David Robert Mitchell's like first, big movie like, and he was like 40 when he made it too. he was very interesting he was later he was much older than than most people are when they make like their first like breakout feature mm-hmm. which is kind of interesting. but yeah it's it's a it's a it's a definitely one of the most memorable horror movies the last 10 years i think is safe to say yeah definitely so this movie is getting a sequel uh called they follow great title and uh micah monroe is coming back and david rod david robert mitchell is also coming back so that's like very exciting i mean we don't really have much um in terms of like details about what exactly this is going to 
the sequel is going to be. We know that it's going to begin production next year. Um, and I think that some of the producers have previously talked about, and this was years ago, like closer to when the original film came out, yeah, they said, yeah. you know, something like, if we ever do a sequel, maybe we'll actually have these characters sort of um, track backwards the the it that, you know, th- this entity trying to like yeah. find the origin of that. So, um, you know, uh, I don't know if that is actually the plan that they're going to continue on with here or if that was just an idea that they were tossing out at the time. But uh, yeah, I'm, I'm very excited to see. Well, I don't think any of the here. same people are involved because originally the Weinstein company, like their genre shingle distributed it. And so Neon has it now, which is like Alamo Drafthouse owns Neon or whatever, like that they're like under the same, uh, they distributed Parasite, for example. But so I, the rights must have, come available again or something i'm not quite sure how it worked out but i think um, and i could be wrong about the details on this i want to say it was like radius twc like you said an offshoot of the weinstein company that originally uh distributed it follows and tom quinn was the guy behind that and i think he is a major player at neon now so i think like even though the company is different like the the guy the producer or executive producer um or sort of like shepherd of the project is the same person i think that would Um, make sense but also like you're coming up on 10 years like you said and a lot of times like rights deals will kind of have like a you know maybe a five to ten year sometimes you know so maybe because we're coming up on 10 years it's possible to do it now like maybe that's the other part i'm not this is speculative point being it's interesting that like neon's doing it so that's like another thing to consider and yeah um, no that's a great point because i remember when um harvey weinstein was going to jail and all that there was talk from kevin smith the director about like him previously asking harvey weinstein for the rights to i think it was dogma back that the weinstein company uh released and and like Harvey just refused to give it to him. And so that movie is like in this state of limbo where like nothing can be done to it. But yeah, like you said, sometimes rights will revert back to the owners of the or the, the um, originators of a, of a certain project or something. So yeah, maybe, maybe we're uh, coming up on that window, but yeah, anyway, I, I'm very excited about they follow. I'm very excited, but also kind of worth pointing out David Robert Mitchell. So what's weird about it follows is like, it's one of those movies that felt like it had like paranormal activity levels of buzz but it it made 21 million at the box office which is good for a movie that only cost a couple million to make but it wasn't like it's it made less money than its reputation sort of dictates that it made which is odd yeah. but the mm-hmm. other part of it is that gave David Robert Mitchell a platform and then with that he made Under the Silver Lake which is a movie you might not have even heard of because it was essentially <laughs> dumped in like late 2018 early 19 because it just A24 decided like we we don't know what to do with this so like it it I love that movie but um, he kind of got put in director's jail after that. It seemed like, like he had a couple things in development, but so it, it does seem a little interesting that after five years of not making a movie now, he's like, okay, maybe I make an it follow sequel now. Cause like maybe that, yeah. I don't know. Uh, it's a way to get out of director's jail. I'm not saying that that's for sure what's happening, but it is worth pointing out that his last movie was a big, big commercial flop and it's been five years. So yeah, yeah, definitely. I have heard that he's working on something, um, with Anne Hathaway at Warner brothers, but I, I don't think there's like a release date lined up for that yet. And it's no, seems like- that was billed as like a monster movie, I think, which I was very interested in. And it sounds like that is happening, but like, yeah, I think it seems like this is happening first. Now. Yeah. 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 
Um, cool. So I guess staying in the world of horror, uh, I wanted to briefly mention that uh, Terrifier 3 has been confirmed that it's going to be a Christmas horror movie, a Christmas themed horror movie. So um, the Terrifier franchise has gone from like this sort of tiny cult indie object to when Terrifier 2 came out last year. Uh, it, it like blew up at the box office and became, you know, even though the movie was two and a half hours long and it was insanely gory and violent, I actually haven't seen it yet, but the reputation precedes it certainly. Um, th- it became like a huge, huge deal for a very, very small amount of money. This movie performed incredibly well at the box office. And uh, now there's like a ton of interest in Terrifier 3. So uh, what is your relationship? You're, you're much more tapped into the horror world than I am, Ryan. What, what's your relationship to the Terrifier franchise, if any? I'm not uh, b- as big on like the really gory, like, and, and the thing with the Terrifier films is that like they not only are they gory it's like extended kill sequences of like just really 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 awful like and uh so i watched the first one and the first one i don't necessarily know i don't think it's a great movie but it's it, there's something about it that sticks with you and so i have not seen all of terrifier 2 because the what i heard about it just was like oh yeah i don't think i can watch that but i did end up out of curiosity watching one of the the kill sequences everybody talks about and it is like you talk about over the top, that phrase gets used sometimes like, Oh my God. Like it. And for what they did that movie for, like there was a, it was, there was a kind of funny campaign to like get that movie, like an Oscar nomination for best visual effects. And uh, genuinely, I actually have a hard time arguing against that. I actually see why makeup effects, I think, right? Yeah. Makeup or whatever, because I actually understand that. I'm like, Oh yeah, because it is you, it is repulsive, but it is no less impressive. So yeah, um, I'm, I am fascinated with like Damien Leone and his ability to capitalize on this. And like art, the clown has become a genuine like horror icon at this point. Like you go to any shop now that sells horror stuff. Like there is art, the clown stuff everywhere. So yeah, that's um, the, the antagonist of this franchise. Yes. But I'm telling you, it is a brilliant hook to make this a Christmas movie. Uh, I, I suspect this is going to do big business whenever it comes out. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so I, I don't know. I, like I said, I can't really talk about this with from any place of authority because I haven't seen these movies. But like, yeah, I mean, human entrails and like um, incredible gore. If you're like, you know, if, if you're that type of horror fan who can who can stomach this stuff, um, you've probably already seen the Terrifier films, but check them out and then uh, get hyped for Terrifier 3 because it sounds like it's going to come out, I think, sometime next year. So um Okay, so uh, the, one of the other news stories that I wanted to mention is, pre, uh, I guess previously on this podcast, we talked about Daredevil Born Again, the new show, and how they scrapped Disney uh, and Disney Plus scrapped a, a lot of that show and essentially went back to the drawing board on it because um, Daredevil, uh, the Matt Murdock character, did not actually suit up in the Daredevil suit until the fourth episode in this, and according to one report and uh, Marvel studios was not really loving what they saw from what had been produced and, and created thus far. So uh, yeah, a bunch of the, the uh, creatives behind that show, there's like a massive shakeup where they got rid of a bunch of people. And so there was a, a big gap there and a lot of people were wondering, okay, what is going to happen with this show? And now, uh, according to The Hollywood Reporter, uh, Dario Scartapane, I think is how you pronounce his name, the, who is the, um, one of the showrunners or one of the creative forces behind Netflix's version of The Punisher, has, has um, been hired as the new showrunner for Daredevil Born Again. Um, Charlie Cox, who starred in Netflix's version of Daredevil, 
is reprising that lead role one more time. So he's going to be back. And then uh, we know that Justin Benson and Aaron Moorhead are going to be directing several episodes of this show. And that's interesting because these guys started in uh, low-budget sci-fi horror indie filmmaking and still do that to some degree. But they've also increasingly become a part of what's going on with Marvel and its ongoing television project. They directed episodes of Moon Knight, and they also have directed episodes of Loki season two. And now they're going to be moving on to Daredevil: Born Again. So they're like staying very much staying in the Marvel lane uh, of creating, you know, and, and working on these TV shows. So um, I know that you're, a, a, I think, looking forward to this show, Ryan, and, and you're like, you know, again, more a little bit more tapped into this than I am. What do you think about the creative choices here, uh, the choices to, to hire these folks to help um, push the show over the finish line creatively? Well, I think it's more than over the finish line because, I mean, they're essentially reworking what had already been shot and then finishing. So what's interesting, when Daredevil Born Again was announced last year, it was announced as like this big 18-episode saga. They didn't really explain, like, is it going to be multiple seasons, whatever. And as we discussed, you and I discussed a couple of weeks ago, Marvel was not using traditional showrunners. But now, so Scardapane is going to be that showrunner. Like they've hired a showrunner. Now there's a guy at the top. And then Benson and Moorhead, who have done Moon Knight and Loki season two, they're like, okay, you guys are our main directors to finish what is now being billed as season one. It's unclear how many episodes of the 18 that is, but it does sound like they're splitting that 18 episodes up into multiple seasons at this point. Um, so I think it sounds organizationally, it makes sense. I think Benson and Moorhead do very good work. Um, uh, they've made movies like Synchronic, and last year they had a very odd movie called Something in the Dirt, a movie called The Endless they did. But then, like, I would say that their episodes of Moon Knight were the best episodes of Moon Knight, probably. You know what I mean? So, like, they, they, <laughs> they, they you know, Marvel seems to like them and they seem to like working for Marvel. So I think it's good to have a steady hand there. And so like you look, Daredevil is right near the top of my list as my favorite superheroes. And and I think those first two seasons of Daredevil, the TV show are among some of the best superhero adaptations we've ever had. And I'm not even a big TV guy. So I am like very hopeful that this all pans out. And, and I, I'm just happy that they didn't just press forward and that they're trying to get the ship together uh yeah. in the hopes of making this work so i'm very hopeful I, i'm wondering if you think that by bringing on uh dario to become the new showrunner here that that is signaling that maybe this version of daredevil is going to be a little bit i don't know grimier grittier what have you than what we've seen so far from the marvel shows on disney plus because he came I, from the netflix version of, of what marvel was doing and those were like famously a little bit darker and more uh sort of adult driven what do you think about that well that and he's been doing jack ryan for amazon so like he's not like I think that's absolutely what this means. And there's also John Bernthal will be back as Punisher in this show, which is interesting because there's connective tissue there. And and Benson and Moorhead, I think the thing is like they've done a little bit more of like the harder edge stuff, I think, with, with Marvel so far. And so, yeah, I mean, I think that makes sense. I, I think we're probably not going to like Daredevil showed up in that episode of She-Hulk and that was certainly a different tone for Daredevil. I would imagine we're leaning away from that a little bit more into like a grittier thing, especially yeah. because if you're going to use the title born again, I don't know how much of a comic reader you are, Ben, but Daredevil born again is a brutal story. And it is one of the, it is maybe my favorite comic book storyline of all time. And yeah, if you're going to do that, you can't like soften it up. You've got to do it. So like, you know, I think that it's important to not lean away from that. 
Okay. Yeah. I've not read that. I don't know anything that happens there. And I guess maybe we should leave that uh, unsaid for, for listeners who aren't familiar, maybe just in the event of, uh, or in the interest of potentially not spoiling anything for anyone. Yeah, but, I um, won't. But but I would encourage you out there as, as someone who is a big uh, fan of comic books as literature, go seek out Daredevil Born Again. Is it a tremendous piece of reading? Awesome. Cool. Uh, okay. So keeping in, in the world of Disney, um, Disney has delayed and, and shifted several projects. Uh, Magazine Dreams, the Jonathan Majors-led movie that debuted at Sundance earlier this year, has been removed from the release schedule entirely. Gee, I wonder why that is. Uh, you can Google <laughs> it if you want to, but basically just a couple days ago, he was told that he's going to have to stand trial for domestic abuse charges. So um, who knows how that's going to shake out? Obviously, there's a lot riding on the Marvel Cinematic Universe and its use of Jonathan Majors and what all, I mean, all, so much of that is is up in the air right now. So we have no idea how any of that is going to play out. But clearly, uh, Disney and, and Fox Searchlight are not interested in putting magazine dreams in theaters under the current circumstances. Um, but I guess for more, I guess for for our like broader purposes here, um, Disney has also moved several other major 2024 titles into 2025. Um, among them, Elio, the Pixar movie about uh, a kid who is abducted by aliens. And then uh, Disney's Snow White, which stars um, uh, Rachel Zegler as Snow White. Uh, and I forgot, Ryan, that that movie is written by Greta Gerwig. Like, I I've seen so much, like, negative stuff out there about Snow White. And a lot of it is just, like, ridiculous sort of, like, um, you know, fake controversy nonsense. And, like, some of it is in reaction to Rachel Zegler basically being like, yeah, we kind of have to, like, update this character for modern day. And, like, people are freaking out about that. <laughs> you know, so, like, the, a, a lot of the um, the controversy around Snow White is, like, uh I would say just like BS nonsense, you know? Um, but uh, yeah, it, it's just, it's fascinating that like there's a lot of, I guess, negative will around that movie. But Greta Gerwig, the writer, co-writer and, and director of this year's biggest movie, essentially, in Barbie, uh, is one of the major creative forces behind this film. So like, I, I forgot about that. And maybe that, um, I know that makes me look at Snow White a little bit differently. Not that like I've, been a fan historically of what Disney has been doing with their live action remakes of these animated movies. And I still feel like it's sort of a creatively bankrupt mission that they're on to just like tap the stuff out forever. Um, but if you get Greta Gerwig involved, maybe there's like a glimmer of something interesting that could happen, you know? So I will say, um, did you see that first image they released? I did. And, you know, I think a lot of people were were dunking on that because it, it and it's for those of you who have not seen it, uh, it's the header image of the article that we're talking about that I've linked to in the show notes. You can see it very easily that way. Um, she looks like the only live action component in it. And like all of the production design around her and all of the dwarf characters around her look, um, you know, heavily stylized and very CG and almost as if everything is shot on the volume or something. Um I'm loath to judge something just based on a single image, but I, I understand why people are not thrilled <laughs> with this. But I am wondering if like maybe, I think Mark Webb is the director behind this thing. Maybe, um, you know, it, it'll look a little bit better in motion than it will, uh, you know, <laughs> as a still. But again, like, I, I'm not really crossing my fingers, Ryan, that this is going to be like some secret masterpiece or anything. So No, um, no, but I just thought that the, yeah, that first image was a bit, yeah, I don't know. Yeah, uh, we'll we'll see. But I, <laughs> I, I, uh, I, yeah. I, I mean, this is this is what happens because of the strikes, and we've been talking about this, and it's unfortunate. 
uh, because now there isn't a Disney movie coming out uh, after the Marvels. There isn't a Disney movie until April of next year of any not Disney nor 20th Century Studios, which is a pretty rough sign for like the state of, you know, the early theatrical part of next year. Yeah. And we've talked previously about how um, Marvel Studios is going to have to move the Deadpool movie, or or I think they already have at this point. So, um, yeah, that that is all thrown up into the air as well. So, anyway, uh, not great. Um, as far as the strike goes, last I've heard is that uh, the studios and the writers are, or I'm sorry, the studios and the actors are pretty close on a deal. Uh, again, like, I don't know how much of that to believe, but there seems to be a lot of hope in the air right now that like maybe even as soon as this week, a deal could actually get done and the SAG strike could uh, could come to an end. So fingers crossed on that. We'll have to wait and see. Um, the last piece of news that I wanted to talk about before we take a break and get into some box office stuff is that the Black Phone 2 is officially, uh, officially happening. Um, this movie came out, what, in 2021, I think. the, the Go to, last, last summer, 2022. Okay, 2022. Uh, and uh, yeah, there, there was some talk like in the immediate aftermath that maybe a sequel might happen. And now, uh, as of like a few days ago, a sequel has officially been announced. So um, what do you think about this, Brian? I know you're a big fan of that first movie. I am. Well, mostly because I'm a huge fan of Scott Derrickson and C. Robert Cargill as a filmmaking duo. And um, it hasn't been confirmed yet, but based on things that they've been saying on Twitter, it does seem very much like they are going to be directly involved. And I would assume possibly as a director and writer again. So that's what gets me excited, right? Like if they are willing to come, it's, if it's not just them handing it off to someone else, like it's them coming back and saying like, we feel there's a sequel to do. Mm-hmm. I, I am like super duper excited. So I, I, uh, there was a segment in VHS 85 that Scott Derrickson directed that was technically in the same universe as the black phone, which I actually like quite a bit. So mm-hmm. even that alone, like has me like really excited about this concept. Like I, uh, Derrickson's one of my favorite directors working today. So I'm, I'm, I'm like, absolutely like, let, let's do this. Yeah. I'm so curious because the black phone was based on a short story that was written by Joe Hill. And I think that's correct. Wasn't it? It was a, I think it was a short story. Indeed, Maybe yes. It's a full novel. Okay. Yes, all right. It was a um, short story. So a short story has already been adapted or, you know, sort of expanded out into a a, um, a full feature. And now they're going to sequelize it. And the sequel doesn't exist in written form. So there's nothing for them to base this on, really. So this is like them moving beyond the realm of what exists and, and cooking up their own stuff. I think they're working with Joe Hill on the idea. Like, he's probably going to be involved in some sort of producerial capacity, right? Um, but, uh, yeah, I'm just like really curious to see, like, do they bring back literally some of the characters that the kid characters that appeared in that first movie? Do they move past that and like tell a story set in the same world that also involves another phone ringing in a basement somewhere or something? I don't know, like calling it the black phone too. Um, of course it makes sense from a branding perspective, but like from a narrative perspective, what does that actually mean for this story? Right, so, I don't know. I'm so, so curious. Cargill tweeted, I'll just explain it to kind of, maybe this answers your question a little bit. Cargill in the aftermath tweeted, uh, I'm, you know, it said me, I'm only going to make a black phone sequel if we have a really great idea. Phone rings, Joe Hill. So I've got a really great idea. Me and Scott 30 seconds later. So we're making a black phone sequel. So basically because, (laughs) so basically the idea is that Joe Hill, the guy who originated the short story is the one who had the idea. So that's where I trust this. And the idea, this isn't just some studio mandated thing. This is like Joe Hill and the, and the creatives involved being like, no, we, we believe in this idea. Let's do this. Yeah. Excellent. Okay. Well, yeah, I'm looking forward to that. I, I enjoyed that first one quite a bit. Um, okay. So let's take a break and then we'll be right back and we'll talk about some box office stuff. 
All right, so Five Nights at Freddy's, Ryan, we have to talk about this. This has become you know, a, a gigantic, genuine smash hit phenomenon at the box office already, uh, even though it had a day and date release on Peacock. Um, I think you predicted that this was going to definitely like surpass the, uh, the pre-release um, predictions or, or uh, box office tracking numbers and things like that. Did you think that this movie would open with what, like eighty million dollars or something like that? What what was the exact number? Do you have yeah, the final there? numbers were eighty million domestic, and and I had talked a little bit about this with Hannah Shaw Williams, who works for us, and me and Hannah are sort of the box office nerds around this joint, and, and I and I was a little hesitant because I've put out you know predictions before, they're a little lofty, whatever, but I really felt like. I think people are underestimating this one a little. Like there was a part of me that like I didn't play these games, but I understood what they meant to the generation be- below me. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, no, no, this is like this is like when Spider Man came out when I in 2002 for me. Like this was a big deal, and and sure enough, it it blew. So so 80 million dollars opening weekend domestic that matches Black Widow, Marvel's Black Widow for the biggest opening weekend ever for a movie that was released day and date. The biggest difference here is that Black Widow, you had to pay 30 bucks to watch it on Disney Plus. Five Night at Freddy's was released for free on Peacock if you had a premium membership. So you didn't have to pay an extra 30 bucks. You could just watch it. It was much easier to watch. Now, mm-hmm. granted, Black Widow was also a little bit more pandemic-y, but you know, that's, the fact that it got anywhere near a big Marvel movie star- starring Jar- Scarlett Johansson is incredible. It also made $52 million overseas, so it was like a hundred and $33 million global debut for a movie that had a production budget in the $20 million range. Wow. Uh, which is utterly, insane. I mean, who knows what it did on Peacock, right? Like that's thing, like this is all. So, I, I mean, that's crazy. And uh, it made $4 million on Monday as well. And like tonight's Halloween. So it's probably gonna make more tonight. Mm-hmm. Um, so, I mean, it's like steamrolling. Uh, I, I wouldn't be surprised if a sequel is announced at the end of this sentence. You know what I mean? Like it's, yeah. I, I, I just, as there was even a thing, Matthew Lillard months ago in an interview, he's like, yeah, I'm signed on to do a trilogy. And like, no one talked about it a lot, but like it, it's pretty clear. Like, oh yeah, like they already know that this could be, so I'm guessing they locked everyone in that they wanted mm-hmm. to lock in is what it, what that's my best guess is that they had options for sequels. So um, yeah, again, I, I, I wouldn't be surprised if this is like a Halloween thing where like this one does well, and then after Halloween did really well, they announced Halloween Kills and Halloween ends at the same time. I wouldn't mm-hmm. be surprised if they announced. But but the point being is that uh, this movie obliterated expectations. And and, and uh, if it didn't make another dime, it would be a resounding success. Like it would get a sequel still. Um, but it's got a long way to go. So, I mean, I I, I don't know. There's, there's a lot to be learned. And I, I still suspect that because of the Peacock release, it's going to have a gigantic drop off in its second weekend. But, um, I mean, you know, uh, a lot to be said. The critic score is pretty bad. It's in the 20%, but the, it has an A minus cinema score, which is almost unheard of for a horror movie. It has like an 88% of, of fan approval rating on Rotten Tomatoes. So audiences and critics are just, just simply not in alignment on this one. Um, and, uh, yeah, so I mean the, the, for the people that it matters to, it, it is doing very well. Um, and, uh, yeah. That's great. So, I mean, yeah, like I, I've not seen this movie yet. I'm probably going to go see it uh, later this week. Um, I've heard it's very much like a, uh, yeah, like almost designed for younger kids. I think we've have uh, at least a couple articles up on Slashville about how this is almost like a gateway horror movie kind of thing for like younger, um, younger audiences hoping to yeah. like 
you know, potentially get into the horror space uh, a little bit later on with in terms of fandom and stuff. Um, so I, I have no idea whether or not I'm actually going to like this thing. But like, as, as you said, like, you know, for those who uh, are tapped into this, it, it's performing well for Blumhouse is performing well. So like, it seems like kind of a, a win all around. And like, I've seen a lot of people just be like, oh, this movie is a piece of trash. It's really awful or what uh, critics I'm talking about, um, you know, like bemoaning this movie's success almost because they think it's not great, but like, yeah, I it don't seems kind of seems like a win-win for everybody. Right. Like if, if well, it's, not it's, for you, it's, it's not for you, don't worry about it. Right. Blumhouse's biggest opening weekend ever. Like Blumhouse has not had a movie open bigger than this, which is, you know, insane. And, and I think the thing is Jason Blum wisely, like this was put into development back at like 2014, I think at a different studio. And then in 2017, Jason Blum managed to wrestle away the rights and he has pushed and pushed and pushed to get this thing made because like he wisely was like, no, 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 no. I know what this can do, you know? Yeah. And, and I think that like, you know, they made it PG 13, which some people pushed against. I'm like, it worked for the audience. It was supposed to work for like, I'm going to see it Friday. I'm very curious. It, it might not be for you, but I think that this is one of those things where, I mean, I, I I'm not, I'm trying generalizing a bit here, but a lot of critics are slightly older and, you know, then, then like this game got popular in 2014 amongst young people. And so mm -hmm. I think that they just might not be tapped into what this means to people. And, and yeah, and again, 81% of moviegoers were under 25. Do you have any idea how rare it is for a movie to have such a strong demographic that like young people go to the movies? Yes. But for 81% of them to be that, it's wild. Yeah, it almost reminds me of like the gentle minions thing, right? Like, you know, where it was like a, yeah. a TikTok driven, you know, like the that movie's success came from younger audiences, but not like parents taking their young kids. It was like teenagers, high school students or whatever, like making it a you know, kind of embracing it as their own. Yeah, well, let's be were, clear. Like yeah. that movie still made a lot of money because it's a family movie, but like it made almost a billion dollars because like you got to understand like those those. Uh, Despicable Me movies came out, I think the first one, like 12, 13 years ago or whatever. So people that are 20 something now, those movies were the movies they enjoyed when they were kids. Yeah. So like it, and so catering to Gen Z is smart. Um, like, like that's if there, if we've learned nothing else this year, like catering to the under catered is really, really good for business. Uh, that's, yeah. that's the main takeaway here. So Definitely. Um, yeah. So, I mean, it just wildly impressive stuff. And, uh, all I can say is congratulations to all involved. Cause I mean, this has been in development hell for like 10 years. Scott Cawthon, the director of, uh, the creator of the games was directly involved. So I think that's pretty cool. And, you know, I just, I'm just like, that's, I mean, this kind of success doesn't happen by accident. That's all yeah. I can say. Yeah. I'm, you know, I'm, I'm sure my observation of like, you know, this isn't for you. Don't complain about it. Who cares? It seems like a win is going to come back and bite me in like two weeks when I'm like, why is this movie, you know, performing this way or whatever. Uh, so I, I just want to like get ahead of the, um, the, the uh, criticism of, of potentially being a hypocrite there. But um but yeah, anyway, I, I feel like uh, for right now, anyway, Five Nights at Freddy's being a, a big deal seems like good news, especially as we were just talking about Disney moving stuff off the calendar. Movies like Dune 2 have already been moved, like the theatrical experience right now and, and the, the, um, the lifeblood of movie theaters is not exactly in the, the healthiest place, uh, even in the sort of like post-immediate pandemic 
uh, type of era or whatever you want to call this this weird zone that we're in right now. Yeah, the, but, I think um, the big thing is that we just can't afford another slump, right? We're like coming out of this, so it sucks that like the first half of next year is looking a little bleak, but it's good now that you've had stuff like the Eras Tour and Five Nights at Freddy's overperform so that, you know, you have some surefire hits heading into what could be a rough period. Yeah. Um, was there, were there any other stories from this weekend at the box office that uh, drew your attention that, that were interesting to you at all? Yeah, we might talk about this next week, but it's very interesting that The Nightmare Before Christmas has been in theaters for the past two weeks for, for its 30th anniversary re-release. And it is now less than a million dollars away from crossing a hundred million dollars at the box office uh, <laughs> 30 years after its original release. And what I didn't know was that it only made 50 million in its original release. So about $50 million or about half of its overall take has been from re-releases, which speaks volumes about what this movie has meant to generations. And mm -hmm. so it will cross the hundred million dollar mark in a matter of days. And I, I just think that's kind of cool. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Oh, also, um, so I, I, I'm sorry, one more thing. I did write a piece about this. No need to languish on it. But a movie called Freelance came out starring John Cena and Allison Brie. Uh, it debuted at number eight on the charts and made just $2 million. It is a $40 million movie, and it has a 0% on Rotten Tomatoes. So that is yeah, entering God. the field for maybe one of the worst bombs of the year. Real I bad saw the trailer there. for this, Ryan, and it looks abysmal. Like, I, I like John Cena and Alison Brie a lot. And, like, I like action comedies. This should definitely be, if not a home run, at least something that I'm interested in, right? Well, like, and the that, guy that directed about... Taken directed it. I don't know how this happened. <laughs> wow. Yeah. Um, that just seems like a huge whiff all the way around. Um, uh, yeah. I'm, I'm bummed to hear that it's it's uh, as bad as it looked, but, like, my God. <laughs> yeah, I don't want to belabor it, but, I mean, like, it I mean, that's, I mean, that is bad. And it's only yeah. made like $600,000 overseas. So Oof. like the problem is when you have a movie with a 0% on Rotten Tomatoes, like it's not that this is like, I mean, that is rare. Like the worst of the worst movies end up with that. So, I mean, you know, when you talk about this going to VOD streaming, like there's very little hope of, of that sort of like reigniting a chain that can help you get that money back. So mm -hmm. yeah, this is, uh, it's hard to pin it on John Cena and Allison Brie. Just, I don't know what went wrong, but I mean, something yeah. went very wrong there. So I guess that's worth sort of pointing out. Yeah, definitely. All right. Well, we're running pretty late. Um, I had one more story listed here. I'm not going to bring it up to, to talk about it. I just want to bring it up to drive people to check it out because it's pretty interesting. Edgar Wright was offered Channing Tatum's doomed Gambit movie. Here is why he turned it down. We got an exclusive on this. Um, and I was certainly looking forward to Channing Tatum's Gambit movie for a long time because I felt, felt like that was pretty good casting and uh, it seemed like uh, an interesting idea and like he was spending a lot of time uh, developing the character and like getting into character and learning card tricks and like the whole thing and that movie just en never ended up happening um, and I never heard that Edgar Wright was in talks for the movie at any point or maybe not officially in talks but had been offered the movie at any point. Um, so we kind of got the story behind that. So if you're interested, uh, check out the link in the show notes that that came, uh, that was like springboarded out of an interview that Ryan did with uh, Simon Kinberg, the producer, writer, producer behind a lot of the X-Men movies. So um, excellent work there, Ryan, as usual. And uh, yeah, it was cool to see that story sort of like get an extra, you know, an extra life to it almost. Like we, we learned even more than what we learned in, in your interview because we kind of like, 
track down Edgar Wright and ask him some stuff about it. So it was cool. Okay, so I think that's going to do it for today's episode of the show. You can find more about all the stories that we mentioned on today's show at SlashFilm.com and linked inside the show notes for this episode. The SlashFilm show is published two times a week, bringing you the most exciting news from the world of movies and TV, as well as deeper dives into the great features you can find on the site. You can subscribe to the show on Apple, Google, Overcast, Spotify, all the popular podcast apps. Please subscribe to our newsletter. Send your feedback, questions, comments, concerns, and mailbag topics to us at bpearson at SlashFilm.com. That is B-P-E-A-R-S-O-N at SlashFilm.com. Make sure to leave your name and general geographic location in case we mention your email on the air. Don't forget to rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. Tell your friends, spread the word. Thanks for listening, and we will talk to you next time.